And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit from of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Thus far the reading of God's word. Thanks, Rob. It's Genesis 3, 18 to 19. <clears throat> We're going to be in that passage of Scripture this morning and also uh, Romans 3, uh, 9 to 20. So if you want to have your fingers in those passages, that's where we're going to be this morning. Lord, thank you that as we come to your word, you lead us, you guide us, you instruct us. Uh, you shape our, the way we view our world, the way we view ourselves, and the way we view you. And so this morning, Lord, as we come to your word, help us to read it with the same spirit that wrote it, that raised Christ from the dead, and lives in each one of us. Uh, Lord, may we bring our thoughts and our attitudes and our opinions under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so at the beginning of this series on human identity, who am I, we said that there are, I have at least three main goals that I want for us in this series. And the first is to understand God's purpose in creating us and that we would become more settled and joyful in life simply because we understand that God has created us for his purposes to be in relationship with him, relationship with one another, and relationship with the world in which he created us. And so we would come to a more settled, joyful view of life and less anxious and less scattered. 
Secondly, we would be drawn into a deeper worship and wonder of who God is and what we mean to him because he loves us and created us to reflect his glory. And then thirdly, to be equipped to speak with peace and wholeness in a world of conflict and division on the issue of human identity. James chapter 3, 13 to 18 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And notice how many times wisdom is used in that passage. And, and that's James chapter 3, 13 to 18. And if we go back to James chapter 1 and verse 5, uh, James instructs us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives abundantly. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's the mark of wisdom. And as we engage in this question of human identity, we need wisdom that is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. In his recent book, Don't Hold Back, Leaving the American Gospel to Follow Jesus Fully, pastor and author David Platt argues compellingly for the power and the sufficiency of God's word in the Bible to transform our lives, our, our practice, our families, and our communities, and our culture. But he challenges the reader to consider how we in Western Christianity have used the Bible throughout our history to support our preferences and our power and how we have used scripture as a weapon rather than as good news for all people. We have not acted in wisdom. He says this, many Christians today lament how more and more people, especially in the next generation, are denying or at least twisting what God's word says about gender and sexuality to align with prevailing cultural trends. But should we be surprised by this? When these same people have for so long watched the church deny and twist what God's word says about issues of race and justice among the nations. The reality we all need to face is clear. All of us are prone to defy God's word even as we convince ourselves we are following it. We could go on and on with example after example to illustrate how desperately need, we need to open our Bibles together with humility, continually aware of our tendency to pick and choose the parts of God's word that align with our opinions and preferences or to twist God's word to fit our desires and lifestyles. And when God's word offends our thoughts on money, materialism, prosperity, poverty, unity, refugees, racism, gender, sexuality, marriage, mission, and any other issue in our lives, in our country, and it will offend us, we need to repent of every way we don't align with what God says 
and then resolve to reorient our lives around the truth. It's from David Platt. We started this series, I, I brought our attention to 1 Peter 3.15, very favorite passage for those of us that are, are intent on defending the faith in the public square to do apologetics well. And it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I want us to remember there are two conditions of the heart that need to be in place as we defend biblical truth in conversation with others, especially around this area of our sinfulness. And these two preconditions are this, that in our hearts we are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and honor him as holy. That's the first thing. We're just surrendered to Jesus. And secondly, that it is our hope filled lives that draw people to ask questions. Notice that. To give a reason for the hope that you have within you. That you're living such a hope-filled life, people are going, what is it about you? That's, that's what should be raising the questions. And do this with gentleness and respect. That's the heart posture for doing apologetics and defending our faith in the public square. Surrender to Christ, full of hope, with gentleness and respect, regardless of how people treat us. We started the series with a very close look at Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the creation of humanity. And from what we learned there, every human being is valued because we're made in God's image. We've been given a vocation to rule and care for the earth, to be co-creators with God, caring for the environment as God's chosen representatives, reflecting his character for his glory. God created us for community and family, and we reflect the community of God as he has made us male and female in his image. So we have value, we have vocation, we have a village. But as we started to discover last week, the beauty and the holiness of these first two chapters of Genesis of our story as humanity came to an abrupt and horrific end as Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's commands. Their relationships were destroyed. Shame invaded the human heart. The desire to run and hide from God took over and the story took a dark turn. Adam and Eve's story is everybody's story. We question God's instruction. Did God really say, I know the Bible says this, but his rightness, we question his rightness. Is he being fair? Is he right? When we seek to define ourselves apart from God and his purposes. Today we're going to continue to face this reality that though God created us in his image and for his glory, we are sinful people, broken and in need. And today we are considering sin's effects or that we are sin-affected people. Genesis 3, 18 to 19, and Romans 3, 9 to 20. Next week, we're going to finish Genesis 3 and Romans 3 in preparation for coming to the Lord's table to celebrate God's solution to our problem. Definitions are always important, and we often miscommunicate with one another when we don't have a shared definition. We can use the same words, but sometimes we mean different things by them, and, and sin is one of those words that, that, that we can maybe not quite understand. So I'm going to use Wayne Grudem 
uh, as his definition for sin from his systematic theology. Now, this is a whole chapter, so this is kind of condensing it into like two sentences here. He says this, we may define sin as follows. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Act, attitude, or nature. And, th and then he goes on to talk about the acts of sin, the attitudes of sin. But, but then it also comes down to this. Our very nature, the internal character that is the essence of who we are as persons can also be sinful. Before we are redeemed by Christ, not only do we do sinful acts and have sinful attitudes, we were also sinners by nature. Now note the important qualification, before we were redeemed by Christ. We can use the past tense then, we were sinners by nature. But we can change that word to are as well. And it's not that we, our nature can also be sinful, our nature is sinful before we are redeemed and made new by Christ. And so it's no wonder, like, uh, we, shouldn't, we, we shouldn't wonder at the amount of evil in the world, we should wonder at the amount that there isn't in the world, that it could be a lot worse. I, I had a, a, a Bob Opperman who was pastoring Stony Plain Alliance Church when I was going to music school about 30 years ago, out of all those sermons, you know, sometimes you only remember one or two phrases from sermons over your years. Like, I don't remember what I said last week, so. <laughs> but I remember him, we were he was preaching about this topic on, on, on our, our sinful nature and our tendency to sin. And he said, given the right set of circumstances, the right environment, all of us, any of us, any single one of us is capable of the worst sin you can possibly imagine. Yeah. The definition helps us see that sin is not simply related to what we do, but our very nature, our, our inner life. We sin because we're sinners. It's part of our DNA. Anyone who's a parent knows you don't have to teach your kids to lie and hide and make excuses, right? Like, we, that's just natural, like for right from the get-go. Or manipulation. Our kids know how to manipulate us pretty quickly, don't they? Like, I think before they're three months old, they're doing it. <laughs> we, have to, we have to work hard to, to teach our kids to choose good things and, and, and to be honest and to come forward. And, and then we also have to step back and wonder, you know, when our kids aren't turning out so, so perfect, we got to recognize that our parenting is being marred by our sinful habits and nature as well, that we're sinners raising sinners. Yep. Right? And here we are, what did we expect? <laughs> you know... And the beautiful thing is, is that when our kids are having a hard time or, or when they're just being rebellious, we don't abandon our kids when they mess up. We don't give up parenting either. If we're healthy, we press in and we seek to learn more and better ways to do this. And God doesn't write us off either. God doesn't leave us alone in our sin. It offends him. It awakens his wrath. It breaks his heart. But sin does not drive him away from us. Instead, he pursues us. Where are you? 
This is the beautiful hope that Genesis 3 holds out for us. As dark of a turn that this story is, here is the beauty of the gospel that God pursues us even in our rebellion. Look at the conversation, uh, verses 8 to 13. We're going to look at this as a conversation, and then we're going to look at the consequences. The conversation, hopefully that's readable for you. I can barely make it out up there but I need new glasses too, so these are really scratched and the things are peeling off. Al, I gotta make an appointment. <laughs> the conversation. Adam and Eve take, they eat the fruit in disobedience to God. They're filled with shame. They're driven to hide. And God enters the scene and he calls out. He engages in conversation and he does it through four questions. And each question is an invitation to own up to what has gone on and to come out of hiding and come back to relationship. Look at God's call in question, four questions. Where are you? God is saying, come out of hiding. Don't avoid relationship with me. Come out of the shadows. Come out from behind that bush. You're hiding from me. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Admit the source of your shame. No, no, nobody told them they were naked, right? They discovered it for themselves after they ate. They, suddenly they were aware and suddenly they were filled with shame. But God is wanting them to own it. Who told you you were naked? Well, nobody. I discovered it all by myself. Have you eaten? Admit the specific act of disobedience. It's what God is inviting Adam and Eve to do. Have you eaten of the fruit? I told you not to admit the specific act of disobedience. This is what confession is. It is confessing specifically the sins that you have committed. Not just generally, Lord, forgive me for any of the sins I may have committed today. Like, no, specific. Specifics. Lord, forgive me for losing patience with, you know, my kid. Lord, and when this happened and it made me feel this way and I'm sorry and I need to forgive myself and then I need to walk in forgiveness of that and then I have to go and make it right. That's confession. It's not just, oh, Lord, cover everything and forget it and move along. It's not confession. Confession requires specifics. What have you done? He asked that to the woman. He asked one, three questions to the man, one question to the woman. What have you done? Own your part of the problem. Oh, God's calling questions and then Adam's response, I was afraid. This is sin's first effect, fear. Fear of being discovered because I heard you. You know, you cannot live with sin in your heart and come to worship and worship openly and joyfully because the presence of God is gonna confront that sin in your life. It's, it's the stuff you're trying to hide. It's the things you're ashamed of. And, and when, we're, when we're walking in shame and sinfulness, we cannot worship because we cannot come into the holy presence of God. You cannot live in sin and worship freely. Your relationship with God is broken and you are filled with fear and shame. But being discovered, you flee relationship and you flee responsibility when you're confronted. So I hid because I was naked. Sin's second effect is hiding, 
shame, avoidance of relationship, denial of reality, or, or masking it, put, putting on the, the leaves and saying, ah, I, I can cover this up, I can deal with it. I hid. So sin's first effect is fear. Sin's second, second effect is, is hiding. And then sin's third effect is blaming. The woman you gave me, she gave me. He's blaming both God and the woman. He's deflecting it completely. Not my fault. I didn't do it. <laughs> Eve's response, one question to Eve, one response from Eve, what have you done? The serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the closest to an honest confession of truth. Now, man, I want to speak to you directly for a bit. Notice that God asks Adam three questions and Eve one. And notice Adam's three responses. He never takes responsibility for the situation. At least he admits he was afraid and he was hiding. That's more than most men do. Most of us would rather live in a tense and failing marriage than admit we need help. Most of us would rather drown ourselves in working longer hours than facing the realities in our families. And most of us, when we're struggling, hope and pray nobody notices, and if anyone does, make sure to put on a good front and say we're working on it when we're really running for our lives. And oh, make sure the pastor never finds out about this. I hear it all the time. And the reality is you're running from God, not me, not the church, and not your family. You're running from God, and you have a very deficient view of his grace because he is calling out to you, where are you, men? The past three years, we've taken almost 30 people through Freedom Session. Guess how many men? Six. And most of them didn't finish. Our women are finding freedom and healing in the new sense of God's presence and peace in their lives. While men continue to think we can go it alone, we're good, we don't need that stuff. Let me be clear, most of you are still hiding in the bushes and scared to death of being found out. You show up at work, you might show up on Sunday when it's convenient, but you're not showing up for your wife and kids because you're scared to face the realities of your broken lives and it's showing in a culture that is largely fatherless even when dad is at home. Where are you, man? I have the same struggles and issues. I'd rather hide at work and in ministry. I can put on a good front. I know how to play the church game. I've made a career out of it. And sometimes in various seasons of my life, I have welcomed the respect and, 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 the, and the admiration of the church because it's a good place to hide my own wounds and insecurities. As Carrie Newhoff said, and, and repeats often, if you're failing at home, pastor, you're failing at work and in ministry. And I've been there and I need to be on my guard against slipping back into that mode of hiding. Where are you? Guys, we need to come out of the shadows, deal with our issues, admit our brokenness, be specific about our sins, do serious business at the cross in the company of one another, not on your own. 
It's the only way to save your marriage, renew your passion, love your kids, and serve the Lord effectively. Confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you can be healed, James 5.16. And just for your information, the verb confess and pray is a present plural imperative. Do it as a habit, a continual action in community. That's what this is about, confessing as a habit, praying for one another as a routine, together, plural, so that you all confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another so that y'all, plural, can be healed. We cannot work harder, try harder, do more when our interior lives are not filled with the freedom of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. Our sense of fulfillment and purpose will only grow and deepen when we surrender to Christ in openness and humility in community. And so God is calling out to you today, where are you? Why are you hiding? Are you continuing to live in active rebellion against my perfect law and desire for your life? These are the questions that God challenged Adam with. But Adam didn't respond at all. He didn't respond well. Instead of an honest confession, he hid, he ran, he made excuses, and he blamed everyone else. The world is broken in a wounded place because repentance doesn't happen. Nothing changes. We still run and hide. But thankfully, God still pursues us. The conversation Now the consequences. God speaks the consequences after Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Then everything shifts and God speaks. And and in most of our Bibles, this is written as if it were a psalm. And it's very poetic, literally and literarily. It is poetic justice. God is merciful and patient. He confronts our sin. He calls us to repentance. But he doesn't necessarily remove consequences. When we make mistakes, when we lie, when we cheat, when we're dishonest, when we get angry, when we lash out, relationships are broken, trust is undermined or destroyed, and the road to restoration is always difficult. Consequences are actually God's faithfulness to his word and his holy character. Read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. God is faithful to his covenant, and sometimes his covenant, his covenant always includes consequences for our sinful actions. And notice that that in this passage, the Lord speaks to the serpent first and then to Eve and then to Adam. He speaks in reverse order. It's a literary inversion. This is a marker of the beauty of scripture, the, the literary work of art that it is. Sometimes we don't think enough about that. How scripture communicates is beautiful. So God called to Adam, A. Then he talked to Eve, B. And Eve identified the serpent, and then God speaks to the serpent, and then he talks to Eve, and then he talks to Adam. So it's an A, B, C, C, B, A kind of inverted parallelism that's going on here. God starts the consequences by addressing the serpent, then Eve, then Adam. This is what is called in biblical studies a chiastic structure. It means the center point is highlighted, and it is the words usually in the center of the passage that carry the theological weight of the passage. And that means that the theological weight of this passage and the consequences that God is announcing is in the direct speech to the serpent. 
It is the words to the serpent that provide the whole story with meaning and future hope. It is the words to the serpent in which God first announces the gospel. Look at this. The serpent first, there's no question, there's no conversation. God doesn't open this one up for debate, does he? He's like, you are cursed. That's it. Cursed are you. Note that he does not say this to Adam or Eve. Humanity itself is not cursed. Dust. You will go on your belly and eat dust. Dust throughout the Old Testament symbolizes abject defeat and humiliation. You are done. And then 3.15, this is the, what is called the proto-evangelium. Hope is born, the, the first gospel. Hope is born in this moment. There will be struggle, but the struggle will give way to victory and evil will die. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Many translations we read, he shall crush your head, but you shall strike his heel. But the Hebrew word here is the same. But there is a sense that, you know, I, I don't know about you, but if I whack my heel on something, it's not a big deal. But if I hit my head on like something, I usually lose my mind. Like, I, I don't know what it is, but getting hit in the head just kind of goes, you know, I can be calm as a cucumber, but then it's like, woof, I'm like throwing things across the room. But a heel, eh, not a, not a big deal. There is an intensity difference here. There is going to come one, born of woman, who will end the serpent. That's what this is getting at. And hope is born in this moment. To the woman, the pain of childbearing will inc be increased her creational mandate will now be marked with toil and pain, and there will be pain in her marriage. The relationship that they, she was created to, to be the helper in is now going to be marked by a power struggle from one flesh to one fight. Your desire, teshukah, occurs three times in the Bible. The next occurrence is in chapter four and verse seven where God comes to Cain and says, Sin's desire is to have you, but you must master it. And actually, this is the only time where these two words are used together in what's happening between Adam and Eve and then what's between Cain and sin. The, other, the third time, it's, it's for sexual desire, which is in Song of Songs 7.10. But I think within the context of Genesis with these two occurrences so close together, it is this, to control or master or to overcome, a desire to, to, to rule oppressively over your husband will come over you. But he shall rule over you, mashal, it's used 83 times in the Bible, and the next one is in 4.7, and it's to dominate or to suppress as a king. What was created to be a one flesh partnership now is a fight for power. And, you know, 28 years of marriage, we're getting better at it, but there's, there's still stuff, right? How about you guys? I don't know, maybe it's just us. <laughs> I don't know, who's willing to admit it here, eh? 
But this creational, beautiful relationship with, with, with uh, being the one to, to bring forth children so that the earth could be filled and subdued through humanity, the creational intention back in chapter 1, 26 to 28, and the, all of chapter 2, which was just this beautiful chapter of the creation of humanity as male and female, we see that it's just, it's infected, affected by sin. And it's going to be a struggle. And then Adam was given this very specific vocation to work the ground, to subdue it, to, to, to honor it, to, to uh, work it, and to care for it. And the ground, Adama, is cursed because of the sin of Adam. Remember, Adam and Adama, dirt and dirtling. Is, is, is now, the, the ground is cursed because of you. The creation, his creational mandate specifically is going to be marked with toil and pain. What was a gift now becomes a labor and a struggle. Food is no longer provided in a perfect garden. Now he's going to have to work and it's going to be hard. And there's going, creation itself is going to fight against him. There will be thorns and thistles and weeds and, and decay and danger. And finally, death. Adam returns to Adama, and dust returns to dust. Again, poetic language of literal reality, emphatically stated through the repetition. You're going cursed as the ground because of you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread, till you return to the ground, for from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Emphatic in the poetical repetition. And as we will read, you can read ahead in the story, chapter five, every single paragraph, he died, he died, he died, he died. And we can observe that all that is now wrong with the world is in this passage. We must also see the hope and the promise in it, for God is not doing away with humanity. Disobedience doesn't lead to destruction but the frustration that every human being ever since has known. The author, the audience, the first readers of this narrative would know the toil and the pain of life and relationships, but in their struggle, they could look forward through all that pain to the day when the serpent's head would be crushed and victory would be real. And we can look back to the cross and see that it's already happened. In the immediate context of the passage, we can also note the original creation mandate given to humanity is never revoked. It is still in force. It will, however, be very difficult now to live it out. Christopher Watkin in his uh, book, Biblical Critical Theory, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture, helpfully observes this. The coming of evil into the world does not negate the goodness of Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve do not cease to be in God's image. The trees do not cease to produce fruit. Animals do not cease to reproduce according to their kinds. And human beings do not cease to fill the earth and subdue it. All these aspects of God's good creation are marred by sin, but none is utterly negated by it. None is utterly negated by it. But the consequences remain. Life will be difficult, relationships will be fractured, creation will groan, and death will be an ongoing reality that the author of Genesis will highlight in chapter 5. So let me summarize quickly the reality of the consequences that are on us because sin affects everything in our world and our life. First, we have spiritual 
alienation from God, were alienated from God, fearful of his presence and driven to hide from him. Rationally, we start using our minds to rationalize our disobedience, blame others and make excuses. This happened to Adam, right? He was just working hard to just kind of, how can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? He was racking his brain. And so he used it to rationalize his disobedience, blame others and make excuses. Socially, we are alienated from one another. We experience relational fragmentation on every level of society from our families to, to our communities. And physically, we suffer sickness, disease, and death and of body and environment. You know, as, as, as you look at the curse to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. I, I wonder if we ever think, my sin hurts the earth. That our, our sin has a global consequence. There's what's called the butterfly effect, right? There, there's an echo that goes out from every decision I make. Every wrong that I do, every good that I do. There's this ripple effect that affects all of, affects my family, then it affects everything else. Our sin is never private. It always has a ripple effect. Sin in human society and history. Christopher Wright in The Mission of God states, sin spreads horizontally in society and propagates itself vertically between generations. It thus generates contexts and connections that are laden with collective sin. Sin becomes endemic, structural, and embedded in history. We learn our sin through our context. It's endemic. It's in our structures. It's in our or society, it's in the way we do things. Sin is a reality in every human life. It affects everyone here every single day. Every relationship is marred by sin. Every task we set out to accomplish is hindered by our sinful nature. Our identity as God's image, bearing creation, is distorted and blurred by the sinful nature that has invaded and overtaken us, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Again, back to Wayne Grudem's definition, our very nature, the internal character that is the essence of who we are as persons is also sinful. Before we were redeemed by Christ, not only did we do sinful acts and have sinful attitudes, we were sinners by nature. And we need to remember this because while we want to fight the sins of society and all the issues that are out there, we need a reminder that we're all sinners and sin is just as present in the church as it is in society. Quickly take a look at Romans chapter three, which makes the point clear. Romans chapter three, I'm not gonna read this, I'm just gonna make some observations. Paul began Romans by outlining the depravity of humanity as we turned away from God. He then turns to those in the Roman church who are, who are living well, who are likely Jewish, who really enjoy and take pride in their status as God's chosen people. And while he affirms a special place of, of Jewish people in God's story throughout the book of Romans, he also reminds them that they're just as sinful and in need of grace as anyone else in chapter one. And then he brings it home in Romans 3, 19, 9 to 20. And unpacking all of that would, would take another sermon. So let's just notice some highlights from Romans chapter three and we'll come back to it next week. The overall message of Romans three is we all need Jesus. 
The first nine verses of the chapter, Paul makes the case that race, nation, theological background don't create a tiered morality. Doesn't create a you're better than us. There's no us and them when it comes to God's kingdom. There's an unflattering assessment of every person that has lived in the poem, in the, in the passage where he, he quotes from the prophets, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceit. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Feet swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he set that off by saying, we know that Jew and Greek are all under sin. Boy, what a depressing passage, eh? But then he takes it another step further, 19 to 20. Obedience to God's moral code, however perfect you may live, is not enough. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being is justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He'll unpack that more in the rest of the book of Romans. But the fact is that obedience to the moral code, however perfect one lives, is not enough. And we'll get to this next week. We have one problem and God has given us one solution for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace which he has made available in Jesus Christ. We have one hope. And that is faith in Christ. So we come to the question of human identity. We must reckon with the sinful nature that is in every single one of us. It is not just our individual acts of sin that separate us from God. It is our shared sinful nature as human beings. We like to think we're better than the people out there, the murderer, the thief, the addict, the sexually immoral. But Paul is clear in these first three chapters of Romans that we're all guilty. I mean, he even puts sexual deviation in the same category as disobedience to your parents. Really? <laughs> Romans chapter one, check it out. The reality is that sin affects all of us. This reality, this reality of sin should not, however, leave us feeling defeated or resigned to a life of misery. God announced hope in Genesis 3. One would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Sin will not have the last word. Evil will not prevail and this painful, broken world will be freed and restored. In every single gospel, we see Jesus casting out demons with the word. They are silenced by him. There is no competition or power struggle between Jesus and the, and the powers of evil. They must submit to his authority in every and any situation. And on Easter morning, when the grave burst open and Jesus walked out of the grave in glory, he defeated death. He did not return to the dust. And the power of Satan was crushed in that moment. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ and repent of our sin and embrace his lordship and come under his kingship, because that's what repentance means, then we move from death to life, from the old to the new, and we become new creations in Christ. It's the 
one of my favorite hymns. I heard an old, old story how the Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning, then I repented of my sin and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. He sought me. And he bought me with his redeeming blood. Meditate on those lines. We sing them quickly. He sought me. He bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me ere I knew him, before I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Who am I? I am created in God's image, and because of that, I have value. And I have a vocation. God created me for his purposes, and I need community to live that out in because God is community, and he created me to be part of a family and a wider community, but I'm also sinful. My human identity is broken, fallen, and distorted, and that affects every aspect of my life, my family, my community, and my relationship with creation. And yet, my value is undiminished in God's eyes. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you do not give up on us when we wander, when we sin, when we deliberately disobey you, when we run and hide from you, when we blame others, when we try to blow it off as no big deal, you still call us and you confront us and you want us back in relationship with you. So Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning that we would hear your call. Where are you? Why are you hiding? Would you just come to me and admit your sinfulness, admit the specific ways that you have, have wandered away from me so that we can find grace and healing in our time of need? Lord, we're broken people that need your healing. Help us to just embrace the reality that you have for us. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.